Hi, I'm Yonit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy from Keshe Podcast, two Jews on the news. Hi, Jonathan. Well, hello, Yonit. I'm finding even the idea of this uh, very challenging because, as you know, you've (laughs) probably been reading that small talk has become a new mountain for people to climb post-pandemic. People don't know how to do it anymore. Apparently, we've forgotten. Yeah, I mean, it's like one of those side effects of of coming out of uh, coronavirus. We're all glad that we were beginning to do that. But, you know, I think it was the Washington Post that had this article with the title, it's not just you, we're all socially awkward now. <laughs> and first of all, I love reading a title that begins with, it's not just you. Yeah, it's right? very You're like, reassuring. Okay. <sighs> Anything that begins with that is fine. Like, it's not just you, everyone hates coriander. I, I like that. <laughs> I like that. So, so apparently, yes, we have all sort of, uh, we don't know how to have a casual conversation anymore. How far away do you need to stand from someone? How long the conversation is? You know, what is appropriate or inappropriate? You know, we've been sitting around in our pajamas and now we kind of have to go back to brush our teeth it's uh it's a strange world yeah no i think it is true and the big topic of conversation has been obviously are you vaccinated when are you going to get vaccinated oh i heard that so-and-so gets vaccinated quicker than that (laughs) and that is going to be difficult those of us who are now doubly jabbed um which i know in israel happened months ago but is news here uh, we don't, we're rapidly running out of conversational topics now that that's happened. <laughs> but yes, people are emerging and finding it a bit tricky um, how to live normal life again. I think just the idea of being in person is the thing. Zoom small talk, people have got that down. I think, as sure. you say, the, the in-person thing is going to be the difficulty down to things like posture, elbow touching, all of that. It's all There are multiple layers of awkwardness. Luckily for us, though, we have big talk as well as small talk because much is afoot in your country. Indeed. And uh, now please do join us for another thrilling installment of your favorite on reality show, Who Wants to be Prime Minister? Jonathan? <laughs> um, so, I mean, the big news this week, obviously, is that Benjamin Netanyahu was forced to give up the mandate to form a government. Um, that happened midnight on Tuesday. I know you were waiting to see if that would actually happen, Jonathan. Uh, and yet your Lapid got tagged. So that is the big news. By the way, Ruven Rivlin, the president, we talked about last time how he gave Netanyahu the mandate with the gritted teeth. You talked about that four weeks ago. Now he looked like the president with a spring in his step calling up uh, Yair Lapid and actually also meeting with him and telling him that he's giving uh, him the mandate. We have to say that at the point we are in, Naftali Bennett and Yair Lapid are closer to the premiership than anyone was in the last 12 years, and they're actually closer than the man sitting in the prime minister's office is at this point. I think that's a really good way of putting it, that they're just getting closer because a lot of people are tempted, but when I say people, I mean journalists, different categories, <laughs> and they are just itching <laughs> to say, you know, it's over, the Netanyahu period is drawing to a close, it's going to... And actually, I think the way you put it is better internalizes the, uh, you know, the once bitten, twice shy feeling that journalists should have, which is you never, ever write it off until it's, you know, this show is not over. This unreality show, as you put it, is not over till it's over. And so we don't Mm -hmm. know. But yeah, they're inching closer than has ever been the case before. And no one has even got within uh, the kind of perimeter of the building. And now they are knocking on the door. Um, by sure. the sound of things. One of them is at the door, the other is at the window, but yeah, the, the general feeling. And, and that, in a way, is a bit that interests me because, uh, you know, mm-hmm. colleagues here and uh, the odd sort of broadcast uh, has been asking uh, uh, me as somebody who sort of follows Israel to sort of t- to talk about this and explain this question. And I realised that I wanted to hear your explanation of it because 
it does defy obvious uh, rational uh, logic, which is the mandate, as you say, has been handed by the president to Yair Lapid as the guy, the apart from Netanyahu, with the largest number of seats. And yet, and we're going to talk about it, he's not the one that people are saying is actually getting closest to that prime ministerial chair. It's someone else who with who won many fewer seats. And, you know, I think <laughs> sure. people who follow Israel a lot attempted to go, yeah, of course, you know, that's just, you know, what, what else do you expect? But outside <laughs> people want some logic. So give us an explanation why, ah, if logic. there's two people there, it's the one with fewer seats who's going to, is inching towards the prime ministerial chair. Uh, I, I would love to explain, but for that, you would have to relinquish anything you ever studied about math. Would you <laughs> do that for me? Yeah, it's not um, much because... for me to let go of, actually, so <laughs> I, I don't mind doing that. But you probably, you probably still need an explanation why 6 doesn't equal 6 and why 6 is, in some cases, more than 17. So that is what we, we're talking about, Israeli math. Uh, so so let's, let's kind of explain why this, this is the logic. There are two camps. We talk about this all the time. There's the anti-BB block. There's the BB block. To break the deadlock, which exists in Israeli politics for the past two years, you have to do something dramatic. Now, what the anti-Bibi bloc is trying to do is to break away Naftali Bennett from the natural habitat he is in, which is the Bibi bloc, meaning he, his ideology is much more closer to that bloc. He dislikes Netanyahu in the same way that many of the anti-bloc people do. So they have to lure him. He is the big prize of the anti-BB bloc. And to do that, to essentially make Neftali Bennett into, quote-unquote, a defector, you have to give him the biggest prize on the table. And the biggest prize is to become prime minister. Now, my dear English friend, I will also remind you of what you learned in your Shakespeare lessons, which is this. The only man who can be the new king is the person who has the power to slay the former king. And the only person in that arena who can do that is Naftali Bennett. I, of course, mean slay him politically, not any other Shakespearean meaning. I hope that was an explanation that makes some sense. But in that regard, that is why, uh, essentially, Lapid, who won almost three times as many of the seats Naftali Bennett has, is not as powerful as Bennett is. And anyone else on that table in the anti-Bibi bloc, Gidon Saar, who won six seats, and Lieberman, who won seven, again, less powerful than Bennett, who today at this point we are in, it has six seats. That is why six doesn't equal six. So within that, let's just talk about these two people. Uh, I mean, on the show, often we've talked about Yair Lapid, and I've um, slightly laughingly mentioned my problem with trying to respect someone who does the same job I do. Um, and, you know, the newspaper columnist turned politician, we've got one of those in number 10 Downing Street. That yes. should be a little bit of a health warning, although, you know, politically he is, it's got to be said, he's doing well. Um, and we have elections going on here, and he's tipped to do well in those. Uh, but tell me, you know, more on Yair Lapid. I, I always know him as this kind of guy with a face for TV. He's very telegenic. His father was a big and important journalist turned politician as well. But, you know, what, what are we missing? What else do we need to know about Yair Lapid? You say face for TV like it's a bad thing, No, Jonathan. it's a very good thing. Uh, he's a handsome man. <laughs> those of us have faces for podcasts, and I'm speaking about myself here. <laughs> can only uh, sit back in <laughs> awe at, uh, at uh, Yair Lapid. He's a very slick and handsome guy. You know, the thing about Yair Lapid is when he, he wrote the most popular column in Israel, but the serious columnists, maybe people like you, Jonathan, <laughs> would kind of mock him and say, you know, but it's not a serious column. He wrote 12 books, but a lot of people said, ah, not serious. They're not, he's not a serious writer. 
when he went into politics, obviously a very popular television man, per, television personality, when he went into politics, everyone, everyone was saying, he's not a real politician. He's just wearing the suit, right? Mm. And what you see a decade after he exploded on the political scene, by the way, the exact same year that Naftali Bennett did, uh, you see a serious politician that is, uh, y- you know, he's making a lot of the right assessments here. And look at what he did in the, these elections. He put his ego aside, his aspirations, his ambitions. He wants to be prime minister. But he said, I am going to give it to Naftali Bennett, who, as we said, has less political power in mandates. But that is the only way, because my first goal is to get rid of Benjamin Netanyahu, who I think is dangerous for the country. Now, a lot of the biography of, of, uh, of Yair Lapid and Naftali Bennett is, is kind of similar uh, in the sense that they're both kind of these charismatic, young uh, uh, characters. They would be the next generation of Israeli politics. Lapid is 15 years younger than Netanyahu. Naftali Bennett is 23 years younger than Netanyahu. Uh, and, and you mentioned this. He's the son of a journalist turned television personality. Um, he... Tommy Lapid was a very prominent politician in Israel. He was the justice minister under Ariel Sharon. Yair Lapid famously says that when he was on his deathbed in 2008, he told his son, you finish what I started. Yair Lapid is a centrist. He would not uh, adhere to any of those sort of uh, titles that you would say he's uh, on the left or the left would say he's on the right. No, he wants to be the Macron of Israeli politics. He's on the center. Uh, Let's hear something that he said to the Jerusalem Post before the elections, which is the closest he came to actually saying he wants to be prime minister in these elections. He was very careful not to say it so as not to become Netanyahu's rival, direct rival. But let's see what he said. He said in English. Let's hear it. I think it's time for a generational change, shift in Israel. I think, um, as I was saying, I'm ready. The party's ready. We have, we have the right plans. We have the right abilities. We have the right experience by now. Mm-hmm. It's been almost 10 years since I, uh, I, I went into politics. We, I served in, in all different uh, uh, positions uh, that prepares you uh, to the moment. So, so, yes, if I will have the chance, of course, I will be more than honored to serve my country this way. On the other hand, you have Naftali Bennett, who's like the uh, Benjamin Netanyahu 2.0, right? The man who worked for Netanyahu, adored him, called his eldest son Yoni after... Benjamin Netanyahu's uh, heroic uh, fallen uh, brother, who is the hero of Entebbe. He's the high-tech wonder kid, the guy who lives in Ranana but leads this, the settler movement. His wife is, is from a secular family. He's the cool religious guy, right? Again, exploding on the scene in, in 2012. Netanyahu also always saw him as that sort of, again, the BB 2.0. He saw the ambition. He kind of kicked him and Yelit Shaked out of his uh, office, uh, according to foreign reports, it was Sarah Netanyahu who did that. And ever since, he was trying to crush him. Um, I guess I would say that uh, if Netanyahu had a mirror and he was talking to that mirror every day, asking who's the most popular man in the land, suddenly Naftali Bennett is his Snow White. I'm not sure anyone ever used the term Naftali Bennett and Snow White in the same sentence. The point is that, um, that these two people worked together in the past. They forced Netanyahu to put both of them in the same coalition. It was in 2013. Uh, That coalition didn't last because Netanyahu was afraid of them both and disliked them both, and he uh, broke broke the coalition apart. But these are two people who know how to work together. It's really interesting to me. I mean, that clip of um, Yair Lapid is fascinating because there he does quite reluctantly express, you know, an ambition, a, a readiness to be, if dragged mm-hmm. to the prime ministerial chair, he'll sit in it, <laughs> if, you know, if he's forced to. But I, I think it's interesting that this, the play he's, he's adopting now, 
in which he gives way to somebody else. I don't know how that, you'll, you'll tell me, but how that plays in Israeli politics interests me because does it make him a friar? You know, is he a kind of sucker for going second and not being, you know, alpha male and asserting his own right to be prime minister? Or does he get credit for sort of integrity that he did honour what he said, which is I, most important is to get rid of Bibi and even if that means I take second place. I just wonder how is what Israelis will make of that Israeli math. Or with, do people think, look, you, you had 17 seats and you made way for a guy with seven or six? You yeah. know, what's that about? Um, or does he get sort of kudos? And you half feel that if it was kind of New Zealand or, you know, Sweden, he would, or Holland, he would get great credit for that and get sort of statesman status. But in Israel, I, I wonder if they'll think that's, that's a guy who you would not send to negotiate, you know, for, uh, a, for a chicken on a Friday morning for you because he's <laughs> going to come back with a, with a bad deal. Uh, and so I just wonder about how that plays. Well, as usual in life, you uh, wait for the result and then you kind of analyze it, uh, backtracking it. So I would say that it really depends if in a week they will form a government. By the way, they're going to have to do it very quickly because Netanyahu is chipping away at the legitimacy of Bennett every hour and every day. If they next week we will sit here and talk about the first Lapid-Bennett government, we will hail Lapid as a political genius, period. Doesn't matter what he had to give up. In two years, according to this rotation agreement that they are working on as we speak, he will become prime minister. Because somewhere along the line, he realized that doing it in a simple way will be a problem for him because of demography, because he is the elite, he's a journalist, he's from Tel Aviv, he was a television personnel. It would take more time for him to do it that way, and maybe will never happen. Whereas uh, uh, doing it over on the coattails of Naftali Bennett will happen. So that is a simple answer. And, and, and moreover, look, he gave up twice. Once he moved aside for Benny Gantz, right, when Benny Gantz became the hero of the center-left, and we all know how that ended, uh, uh, with, with uh, political novice Benny Gantz uh, going into Netanyahu's coalition, I think he paid a price after that. But being the one person who stayed out of Netanyahu's coalition, when even the Labour Party uh, went in, gave him a lot of clout. Yeah, I think it's... Um you know, the, the the old rule book, which was that, you know, you only have one shot and you've got to make it count and t history moves on, that never really applied much to Israel, where, you know, have not they say about America that it's, no one has a second act, you know, uh, Scott Fitzgerald said that, and it was actually always, I yep. thought, wrong about America, but the it, but it's definitely wrong about Israel, where people have a third, fourth, fifth and sixth act, and you have someone like Ariel Sharon yep. coming back at the end of a kind of 60-year career to be, um, uh, to be prime minister. You know, and that's true in Israel. Longevity is a real thing about the Israeli career. And so maybe um, the fact that he will have passed, up, passed it up twice. You know, you think of Joe Biden, who's sought the presidency twice back in going back to the 80s and does eventually mm -hmm. make it. And maybe Israel is like yeah. that. And so Lapid will eventually, in this very roundabout way, get there. But look, we, Naftali Bennett himself... Um, we did we hear the bit of Naftali Bennett? We probably should. Uh, we, no, oh, we should. We, we should, should probably yeah. hear him. Partly just because it's interesting about what he says about himself and how he sees himself. You know that he's aware that he's known as the high tech guy, but he wants to sort of say he's almost. Yes, he's the businessman who can t you know set Israel straight, but almost more than that. I'm an entrepreneur and a leader, and what Israel needs today is not more dirty tricks. We've had enough of that. I'm focused on one thing, getting Israel out of this chaos. Israel is not managed. Uh, there, there's no competent 
management of, of this country. If, if it were a company, the CEO would be fired. And it's time to fire the CEO and bring in a new CEO, a new leader. Uh, say thank you to, to Netanyahu, which I do appreciate his, uh, his uh, contribution. He's not going to be able to unite the country. Mm-hmm. He's not going to be able. He doesn't have the ability these days to, to reinvigorate Israel. And that's what we need. This was before the election, by the way. And, and, and Naftali Bennett is like the perfect embodiment of be careful what you wish for. He wants to be, he always wanted to be the first religious prime minister of Israel. He didn't want it this way. He wanted to be the head of a right-wing government. And he's going to have to decide if he wants to seize the opportunity now with the risk of upsetting his base or waiting for a better opportunity. I'm jumping ahead massively in my mind because the big question to me is if they manage to put this together, what do they agree on the morning after? You know, a coalition that includes merits on the on the on the left mm-hmm. uh, with you know our friend the Islamist dentist Mansour Abbas uh, on the other end. How, how does this coalition and then with Naftali Bennett we haven't mentioned you know the entrepreneur but also a former settlers leader. How they all could, what they do on day one or day two after the celebration of getting BB out. Who knows? Listen, we should yeah. talk about um, the, the the event that happened just hours after you and I had recorded uh, Unholy last week, and that really hovered over um, uh, the, the weekend and, the, and the, the days since, and it's what people in Israel and what people outside Israel have been thinking about and reflecting on a lot, and that is this horrific uh, stampede and crush uh, at Mount Meron, uh, where re- ultra-Orthodox religious Jews were gathering for Lagba Omer, and, and they've often gathered in that place. And just terrible scenes of, uh, you know, fathers who had gone up there with young children with their sons and, and one coming back and one not, and I think the death toll standing at 45. Uh, it was It's an event that went around the world. People were reporting on it um, who, you know, were far from it. But just tell me a bit, I mean, I, I, the sense of national mourning. I think it is the biggest civil mm-hmm. disaster. We've had disaster. those in this country, and they there is a very... A deep heaviness kind of descends on the country in the days after one of those. Uh, you know, the uh, people who've seen Watch the Crown, just to, to pick with off the top of my head, the Aberfan disaster in the 1960s in Wales, where uh, a Welsh village just fell under uh, the coal that was in a, basically a slag heap that fell on the town and suffocated the people there. And that's still remembered, you know, decades and decades on, especially when young people and children are involved. Is Mount Moron going to be that kind of thing in Israeli history? Uh, I'm, I'm sure it will be. I mean, you mentioned just the, the, the terrible tragedy and the fact that the Israel commemorated a day of mourning after this happened. Um, you know, funerals one after the other and a four-year-old boy saying Kaddish over his father, a father saying Kaddish over his son, Many young men and boys perish, the youngest being nine years old. What happened in Meron is not, not a natural disaster in the way that it is, it is a failure on two levels, right? One level is that local level, the operational failure, the fact that you had a great number of people 
walking on an exit route, uh, on an incline, and they were slipping and overcrowding the police on top, not realizing what happened, what's happening on the bottom. And there's this, you asked about the national mood. There's this mood in which you're, you say Israel is this high-tech startup nation with the, with the vaccines rollout and all that, and we can't build uh, just that, you know, that walkway that people can go into an event and, and go back home uh, you know, and return safely, that's, that is like a feeling that you, you kind of have. And you have to mention that the failure is not only on that level, right? The failure is the second tier, is it the fact that there was no proper control of that site? That is something that a lot of Israelis have been talking about. The state of Israel has sort of accepted the fact that Meron is essentially ex-territorial, right? It's, it's controlled by separate Haredi courts or endowments and machers. And at the end of the day, the second most visited religious Jewish religious site in Israel after the Kotel is run like, it's a blunt thing to say, but it's run like a shtetl. And that is something that a lot of people uh, felt that if, if that had been fixed, you know, people for years and years said this is dangerous, too many people are coming here. Uh, everyone thought it could happen, but nobody thought it would happen. And, and you feel that the, the, there were so many writings on, there was so much writing on the wall, there was not a wall. You could have seen this happening. And, and no one actually said, you know what, the state of Israel is going to take responsibility and authority over this, this site. The other scene it reminded me of was the Hillsborough disaster in, in, in England where Liverpool fans were crushed, uh, 96 of them uh, killed in 1989. And it was about state, say, uh, safety at a football ground and a gate was closed and people moved forward and it had a very similar echo to that. And it struck me that it had this, those multiple reports, I think the state controller and others writing reports in Israel, had they been saying that about a football ground, you know, about a, a stadium uh, for one of Israel's football clubs and said this is a disaster waiting to happen, an accident waiting to happen, I think action would have been taken. As you say, it is uh, this notion of a separate kind of enclave under mm. its own uh, jurisdiction and autonomy. And, you know, early on, several podcasts ago, you and I talked about the coronavirus phenomenon and how, you know, again, Haredi Jews, ultra-Orthodox Jews were gathering in hundreds of thousands. And in some ways, the state felt as if it just couldn't intervene, as if this is a separate autonomy, um, a separate mm -hmm. zone. You know, in a very miniature way, there is something similar that goes on in the... And mm -hmm. I've told listeners before about how I live in the Haredi neighbourhood here in London... And, you know, I know that there are, I've heard it from people involved in the local authority, there are things where they back off, uh, where they don't actually impose the rules they would impose on a regular yeah. school or, a, you know, facility. They, there's a sort of distance that they say, well, look, that's them. And I just wonder if, whether they'll, this Mount Meron and the, the, the horror of it will compel mm -hmm. either on the side of the sort of, as it were, secular authorities, a feeling that we can't keep doing this, uh, sort of looking away from this section of our, you know, community? Or will there be a feeling on the, among the Haredim themselves to say, it's time we opted in to the rules that govern everyone else. We need to do that. Yeah. Because if we don't do it, you know, lives will be lost because lives already have been lost, whether it was to COVID, yeah or whether now to this stampede and this crush. I don't know if there is any sign of that, but I'd be curious if, you, if you're if yeah. you picking up any evidence of it. 
you know, the, um, <clears throat> that sort of question of whether anyone is saying in the Haredi community, this autonomy is killing us. And, and not even this autonomy is killing us. This autonomy is hurting us, right? It's not only things like Meron or the, the restrictions don't uphold for issues like coronavirus. It's a separate education system, right? Most of the Haredim don't learn math. They don't learn English. And when they want to be involved in the workforce, they have a, a problem. There are all kinds of aspects to this autonomy. Now, I think that when you ask the question whether or not the voices are, are already being heard, I think the answer to that, and I spoke to a few friends who are in the, say, the outskirts of the Haredi community, they say, yes, there are voices who are saying this. They're not very loud, and importantly, they don't have political backing behind them. Because the other sort of thing to remember about Israel is that you have Haredi politicians who make sure that this autonomy remains intact. And I'm not sure that unless there is a political change, for example, in parentheses, indeed a Lapid, Netan, a Lapid Bennett government without the Haredim, that will ever change in, in, in that regard. What I think is very interesting is the voices that we're hearing calling for uh, an, an inquiry and uh, a state uh, commission of inquiry. And that is interesting because if you don't want the involvement of the state at all and suddenly you are saying we have to get to the bottom of this. We have to understand why 45 people are dead. And you are hearing that in the Haredi community. I think that is indicative of the fact that you're, there already are signs of change or seeds of change. Well, that in a way is encouraging. I mean, in, in amongst all this bleakness, if people are at least asking those questions and hoping for some kind of change. Um, uh, talking of change, should we have a little change of pace and hand out our <laughs> chutzpah awards for this I week? like what you did there, Jonathan. Yeah, I could That's almost be impressive. in your line of work, you know. I'm coming after, first it's Jan Lepid, <laughs> and now it's you. <laughs> I'm coming after you with your broadcasting. Well, uh, you can all say the uh, now to something completely different. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so what? Chutzpah and Mensch Awards? I think it's time. It is. Okay, so chutzpah is, uh, this week we have the glorious sight of two countries asserting their rights by enacting past glories. Um, uh, there's a fishing dispute over the island of Jersey, one of the Channel Islands, UK territory right off the coast of France. I hope you're listening, Jonathan, you might learn something. Uh, <laughs> France threatened to cut off the island's power. It gets 95% of its uh, uh, electricity from uh, French mainland. And Britain responded by, wait for it, sending in gunboats. Good for you guys, Jonathan. It's so retro. gunboat diplomacy. It, it's kind of retro, isn't it's it? It's retro. I like it. It's very 18th century of you. And it, I think what um, is it? it's the 200th anniversary, isn't it, of Napoleon's um, death. Indeed, and So indeed. we're marking it by... I, the, are you celebrating? Well, we're, we're clearly, <laughs> look at this. And we're sending in gunboats, gunboat diplomacy. I mean, you know, in a way, people like me who campaigned against Brexit, uh, we're, we're at the sort of facepalm stage here, really, where we're just slapping our own foreheads thinking... Really? As it, we're actually doing this? I mean, some crazy things happened during the Brexit process where at one point there was a dispute about Gibraltar, still a British territory, uh, but it's just there off the coast of Spain. And, you know, one former Conservative Party leader saying we should go to war with Spain if necessary. And in a way, you're just following this to its logic because the ultimate, you know, historical English pastime is going to war against the French. And it is, it's sort of beggar's belief. It's like an April Fool joke, and yet it is real. And yet, you know, though we're, we're coming to realise that none of this stuff ever plays badly for Boris Johnson. In fact, it plays quite well. It is, there are big elections going on here as we mm. speak. Um, some of those results will come through by Friday, more on Saturday. 
uh, and you know, rattling the French cage. No, no British politician ever lost out by mm-hmm. doing that. So this is part of that, even though it looks crazy to be doing this. And really <laughs> by the way, I'm not sure it's so bad for Macron either, this rattling sabers thing. And it's a big deal. Um, it's a symbolic deal. And yes, lots of fishing people, fishers, because fisherman is too gendered a term. Uh, listen, Yoni, you may learn something. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if we can, we too can play at that game. Um, the uh, yes, yeah, so fishers are very annoyed with um, Boris Johnson because they feel that was one of his big promises uh, during the Brexit process that the fisher fishing people, fishing folk would benefit. Uh, from Brexit, and of course they haven't. It's been terrible for them, just as the Remainers always warned. And so this is all part of that. So yes, I think a worthy winner of uh, Chutzpah to send in uh, gunboats um, to the uh, coast of Jersey and rattling sabers and working with, uh, you know, to threaten the French. Meanwhile, for Mensch, I thought I would put in an early uh, bid for uh, a repeat winner of this award. He's been there before. But I think Joe Biden does deserve credit for uh, siding uh, with the developing world against Big Pharma and coming out in favour of waiving or suspending the intellectual property protections on COVID vaccines. And this is something uh, countries in the developing world who are lagging behind in vaccinating the people have been really demanding uh, desperate to uh, boost production of the vaccine, and they have been inhibited by uh, intellectual property patent law, essentially. And this uh, decision uh, by President Biden, being, you know, it's been pushed by India, it's been pushed by South Africa, many others, uh, would relax that. And so this could lead to more vaccines getting into the arms of people in the poorest countries in the world. So good for Joe Biden, I say. I think he's a worthy mensch for, our, for this week. Sure. Uh, another match? Can we uh, can we uh, talk about others? I think there's always or room for one more. Are we giving it to the president just because he's the president? What do we do? I think we can talk about others. Yeah. Um, so I will um, go to my um, alma mater with television. No, just kidding. Uh, we will uh, discuss our uh, this interesting gem we discovered on Netflix. Lior, our executive producer, offered this actually. It's a French program called Family Business. Uh, it's not new. Its third season is coming up soon. It's a story of a Jewish family who runs a butcher shop in Paris, and an interesting turn of events uh, leads them to become bona fide uh, drug dealers and growers. It's like the Jewish Breaking Bad, only it's funny. So it's nothing like Breaking Bad, actually. <laughs> it's a more modern family comedy. Uh, many Jewish jokes, including the grandmother's recipe on how to grow better weed. So it's highly recommended. Really, I, I obviously have. No- I think this could make a Mensch award for sure. I have no idea what you even mean when you refer to that, of course, because I have teenage sons listening and uh, <laughs> I just cannot possibly imagine what you're talking about there. If we talk about <laughs> French TV shows, I must say I'm feeling rather bereft because this week I watched the last episode of the last season of Le Bureau, which I've mentioned before. <laughs> you can get it uh, via Amazon Prime. It is absolutely terrific. I mean, it is so good. Uh, you think it's just a spy show, but it's a spy show in the way that Le Carre novels are spy novels. You know, it is so much more than that. It lives in that zone, that kind of grey zone of moral ambiguity. You, either, you know, either, either the heroes are slightly villains and the villains are slightly heroic. There's grey in everyone. Uh, you, there's, there's just a, a fantastic human story with the central character and a central kind of love of his life. 
but also um, that love of country and the disappointment people who love their country feel when their country lets them down. And, you know, I think that's something everyone can know about. And uh, so if we're talking TV shows, Le Bureau really, I can't call it men. Is it violent? I mean, because I've, I've, is it very violent? Or no, it's not that violent. There's some, but no, 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 no okay. not that much. There's, you know, Because I've realized that people who can't stand violence can't have nothing like me. Uh, you know, you, you can look away. There's, so. there's not much that's violent. There's okay. some, but you can look away. Uh, there's an Israeli element. There's an Israeli storyline at one point. I don't want to say more than that. Um, so no that spoilers, would, Jonathan. That, that, was, that would no always you know, go down well. Um, but listen, before we have concluded our handing out of Mensch Awards, I must do one to my own employer, which is the Guardian <laughs> newspaper passed its 200th birthday this week on May the 5th. May the 5th, 1821 was the very first edition of the Guardian uh, newspaper. Uh, we discovered that on the very first front page, the in the very small ad at the top right, is an ad for a promotion for a book promoting a vegetarian diet. So the Guardian has always been the Guardian, wow. is what you discover for, <laughs> for, for two hundred years. <laughs> for two hundred years, um, but no, I mean of interest perhaps to unholy listeners. I know unholy listeners. Some of them will be thinking, "Ugh, the Guardian. I don't celebrate that." they're always bashing Israel, they'll say. But if you do... What did they write about all the uh, during all the years that Israel didn't exist? Well, what did they they're, I'm, so, kidding, so, I'm kidding. Well, <laughs> good that you mention it, because long before Israel existed, there used to be, in the editor's office in The Guardian, um, the uh, a long time ago, uh, on display there was the Eretz Yisrael supplement of The Guardian, called that, by oh. the way, published in 1933. Uh, th- so in other words, long before there was the State of Israel... The Guardian's longtime legendary editor, C.P. Scott, who was the editor when The Guardian marked its 100th birthday, he edited the paper for 57 years. So you and I, you'll need our media slouches when it comes to this man. (laughs) Uh, He was a massive early Zionist, a big friend of Chaim Weizmann. They had the Manchester connection uh, in common. And uh, there there is just amazingly warm correspondence um, between the two uh, in which, uh, you know, Chaim Weizmann... Uh, C.P. Scott wrote to Chaim Weizmann and said the Balfour Declaration is at once the fulfilment of an aspiration, the signpost of a destiny. This is the Guardian editor talking. And then uh, reciprocating, uh, Chaim Weizmann uh, wrote uh, to uh, C.P. Scott to say that the Guardian had been a source of comfort and consolation to find your great journal so sympathetic both towards the woes and the hopes of the people of Israel. They were massive. Wow. It was a kind of man crush between the two of them, Weizmann and, <laughs> and Scott. They really did like each other. Um, and uh, the Guardian was really proudly Zionistic when hardly anyone was and cheered the Balfour Declaration when it came in 1917. Now, obviously, things took a different turn, but it's a birthday Just week. Just a wee bit. <laughs> it's a birthday week, so let's stay with that. Obviously, the Guardian... That's celebratory. So it's in the editor's office, you said, or was in the it editor's It was office? in the Guardian's off- editor's okay. office. I think that it's a previous editor I'm talking about, and I think he may have taken it with him when he left because it was, it a, was a personal story. prized yeah. possession of his. Um, it was like a supplement uh, promoting, uh, well, it was, it was promoting Jewish settlement in, in Palestine, in Eretz Israel, 1933. So the Guardian made quite a journey um, and has become obviously fiercely critical of, I would say, of the occupation rather than of Israel itself. But um, uh, it, the relationship began a very different way all those years ago. How old were you when you joined, and did you always want to write there? So I was 26. Uh, when 26? I was 26 wow. years old. 
and uh, I joined in Washington. My first job was uh, with the Guardian Bureau in Washington in 1993. So using your Israeli math, you'll be able to work out exactly how old I am. We won't have to say, but yes, 28 <laughs> years I have been a writer for The Guardian and I've loved every minute, obviously. And the history is an amazing history and we're all feeling rather proud of yeah. it this week. And Mazel Tov. So, um, so we are ending our program um, and uh, we want to say thank you. We want to say our thank yous, Jonathan, to our executive producer, Lior Friedman, Rome Attic, head of podcasts, and Irad Eshel for original music. And, of, and we will tell you... Yes. I was just going to say, of course, you must recommend us, ping us, mention us, write to us, any other language applied to the social media universe, do it. Um, we are on Instagram at two Jews on the news, just letters, no numbers. Uh, do please recommend us to friends. People have been doing it. We've been getting very nice five-star reviews on the Apple page, but keep them coming. We're very grateful to you for them. And uh, Yonit, I think it's time for us to say cheerio. Indeed. Have a great week, Jonathan. You too.